And now, coming to you live from the Goshen Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Christopher Rowe on the Crude Street Podcast. And welcome, Christopher. I think I mentioned we've we've talked to you on one of the 10 Mounted Podcasts, but you haven't had a, a, a full-scale podcast with us. And now we have the excuse of These Prisoning Hills, which is a magnificent novella, to congratulate you. you on and to con- and, and to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, and all of those things are true. Um, well, I won't say that the magnificent part was true, but it is true that I did a 10 minute and it is true that this is my first time on a full length episode. So we should start with how are you? How have you been? I mean, is, is the writing going well? Is life treating you well? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I'm doing a number of things. I'm finishing up the, another novella for Tor.com uh, called The Navigating Fox, which is being edited by Ellen Datlow. I think that caused a bit of a odd stir, uh, at least with my agent, if not the Tor.com people, because I sold or I successfully pitched these two novellas to two different editors at Tor.com, which is apparently unprecedented. And then... He went and did the deal. I don't know. I don't uh-huh. know exactly how that worked out. Maybe yeah, it's so not as I, as I understand it, you know, sort of, if, if there are many novels to come, I, I'm allowed to talk to you about science fiction novellas, and Ellen's allowed to talk to you about fantasy novellas. That's my understanding. Right, right. Is the kind that of, is kind of the that's yes, that's what I've under, that's what I understand as well. Um, I, luckily, yeah. I'm I am behind, frankly, on the on the fantasy one, but. Luckily, Ellen's in Italy for a few weeks, so I, uh, I have I have some time. I got some extra time on my deadline. So well, I guess we should probably probably start. I mean, if we're going to talk about these prisoning hills, it's the third in a series of stories that date back what to, to the early two thousands with uh, the voluntary 2005, state. Two thousand five, mm-hmm. the voluntary state, which appeared on the late lamented uh, sci fi website right. on that TV when that TV network was. Doing a robust, yes. actually, many um, uh, many things on the internet, um, including publishing uh, uh, quite a few quite good short stories and novellas and novelettes, mm. edited so, by Alan Dallas. Since this is going to be at least part of what we're talking about, where does this story start for you? Where does the voluntary state that become that's connected to the border state that's connected to these prison hills start? Are you talking about an internal chronological order? No, uh, in terms of for you as a writer, where did you pick it up? I mean, it comes out, actually looking at it, it came out in May of 2004 on Sci Fiction. Oh, wow. So hmm. um, it, it it goes back 18 years or more, this story. Oh, don't say that. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, the genesis of the first story was my invitation, my first invitation to attend the Sycamore Hill Writing Workshop, uh-huh. which is a uh, peer review a uh, professional-only, invite-only science fiction and fantasy workshop that is a direct successor successor of the Milford workshops that were run in the 70s by Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm, maybe? Yeah. I'm not, no, she, okay. And uh, in Milford, Pennsylvania. And John Kessel attended a couple of those at the beginning of his career and then he and a couple other writers, including Mark Van Name and somebody else, maybe Greg Frost, started uh, in North Carolina, Sycamore Hill. Uh, eventually, just John was running it. And now it's run by Richard Butner, uh, a spectacular short story writer. He also has and, a, a good new collection of short stories. Yeah, he's got a great collection from Small Beer Press called The Adventurist. And um, 
So this year, actually, it's in a few weeks. The next Sycamore Hill is. It will be my 15th time attending. Hmm. But the first time I attended, um, I was very nervous. Um, quite a few people were going to be there, people I did not know but were literary heroes of mine, like Jeff Ford and Jonathan Latham and Karen Joy Fowler and hmm. Kelly Link, who I did actually know very well. Um, Kessel, Jim Kelly, Eileen Gunn. We were talking about Eileen mm-hmm. Gunn. Um, and I needed to write a story. And it was like two weeks before Sycamore Hill, and I had nothing. Um, and Gwenda said, I will give you a prompt, and you sit down and write. <laughs> and she, she said, um, there is a car at the top of the hill. There's no one in it. The door is open, and the window is broken. And that's what I started from. And it got a little weird. Um, but I just kind of took off with it. I, it's one of the few stories I've written with no plan whatsoever. Hmm. I, I wrote that story from beginning to end, making it up as I went along. Um, I can now with the remove of 18 years, um, spot the influences in it. We were talking about, we were going to talk about influences, um, including things from Terry Bisson to Carson McCullers to, Warner Brothers cartoons from the 30s and 40s, <laughs> right? Um, the uh, the genesis of that I the that idea stuck with me for a long time, and then when uh, Gavin Grant and Kelly Link, uh, the owners and operators of Small Beer Press, asked me for a collection, they wanted a new story um, to include in the collection. I then wrote a 40,000 word story. <laughs> uh, the border state, which actually is a prequel to the voluntary state. And now I've written these prisoning Hills, which is simultaneously a prequel and a sequel, uh, to both of those. We should mention um, that uh, people don't need to have read the first two. Because oh, absolutely not. You can read any of the three independently right. of one another. Except, except these prisoning Hills does offer us little snippets of backstory, some documentation that kind of yeah, fills in the back. It does. It does. Actually. And the editor, the editor of that novella, the esteemed Jonathan Strine, uh, was the one that suggested those uh, those ah. snippets. Well, mostly because I think whilst the story stands very well alone, it doesn't hurt to have a, a, a means of uh, weaving other information into to connect it to the to the rest of that world. And also, I think, I mean, uh, without veering off from it too much as well, I think it's a grand tradition in science fiction and. You know, to me, the voluntary state and the border state and these prisoning hills are intensely science fictional stories. Um, it, it is a, a a classic way of delivering information in, in these kind of series to help build your world in short fiction to do this sort of thing. And I think it works really well mm-hmm. here. Um, do you feel like it's a world you're you're done with? No. Um, quite deliberately, those uh, interstitial documentations, I think was Gary's word. Mm-hmm. Are um, are said to be excerpts from uh, from a book called The History of the First Athena War, yeah. uh, with the implication that there is a second and maybe even subsequent Athena Wars. So I did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. I have the inklings of an idea uh, that will again jump back and forth in time that will have a roughly contemporary, well, near future section set in at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, that recount the origin, the the creation of Athena Parthenis by thirty a, a team of thirty six mm-hmm. scholars across all disciplines, and then mm-hmm. jump way forward in time to a um, to a story about 
uh, the second Athena war with new characters, but um, the idea of a of a, recur- a, a resurgent and revived AI that uh, takes advantage of the fact that the the remnants and now the thriving remnants of the earlier war have adopted and adapted some of her technologies, thus allowing an an avenue for her to to revive herself. Well, one of the things that uh, struck me with the first two stories and and with the third one was yes, they're they're intensely science fictional in lots of ways, and in some ways, um, the, the, the these prisoning hills in some ways is even more science fictional because you not only have a rogue AI, you have AI wars, you have a world transformed by nanotechnology, but you've got some classic gigantic stomping metal machinery things, mm-hmm. which I want to talk to a, uh, in a few minutes when we get to something else. But at the same time, they were intensely science fictional. They struck me as being intensely regional. Um, there's a sense of Kentucky and Tennessee in them. Um, I immediately, I'm, I've been to the Parthenon in Nashville, so I kind of know what that looked like. And I noticed that your a collection was dedicated to other Kentucky, Tennessee area writers, Jack Walmart. Kentucky, both Kentucky. Okay, both Kentucky. So Kentucky science fiction goes back, I guess, all the way to Walter Tevis, if not before. Um, right. And there's a tradition there which uh, which is rare in science fiction, I think. Uh, who, who you, we were talking some time on Facebook a few months ago. Somebody was asking, "Are is, is there a tradition of American regionalist science fiction? And, well, Waldrop is one name that comes up, obviously. And, and yours, and Terry Bissons, whose autobiographical novel, I guess, Any Day Now, it's called, yeah. um, is really should have been a bigger success than it was. But again, it makes that connection between, in that case, alternate history and, and the sense of, of place, which is uh, as authentic as any uh, mainstream writer from that, uh, from, from that region. You mentioned somebody like Carson McCullers, for example. There, there is that sense of being specifically in Kentucky and Tennessee. I, 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 my brother lived in Tennessee, so I spent a lot of time there. Mm-hmm. But uh, it just strikes me as being an authentic landscape, even though it's completely transformed by nanotechnology. Uh, thank you. Um, I will briefly just uh, bounce off a couple of things you were saying. You know, Terry, who is a mentor of mine and a longtime friend, mm-hmm. um, he says that any day now was actually one of the great mistakes of his career because he decided to get fancy and insisted not be published as <laughs> science fiction, which he uh, which he believes to be the the secret of its commercial failure. Basically, <laughs> uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful. It's a novel. good book. I highly recommend it. Um, so regionalism. Now, there's a difference between regionalism and local color writers. Oh yeah, and um, so. I had to constantly maintain that idea in my mind because it feels like sometimes it feels like a trap, but then I think of Manly Way Wellman, um, for example, yeah. and you know, he wasn't trapped at all. Uh, he was, you know, he's a celebrated extraordinarily, extraordinarily accomplished writer, a long dead, I should uh, yeah. say for um, the listeners who don't know. Um, but it is, it can be worrisome to me sometimes, not all the time and not tonight, but sometimes it can be worrisome to me to think that people are going to see Kentucky stories on the cover of a book oh. and think, well, that's not for, that's not for me. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but most of the time I'm happy with it. The reason I write science fiction actually 
was is because of Terry Bisson's collection, Bears Discover Fire. When I was younger and first starting out and became interested in becoming a writer, which actually didn't occur until my early 20s, hmm. I, um, I bounced back and forth constantly. And both my interest as a reader and my interest as a writer between home cooking, uh, between, <laughs> you know, between uh, literature of Southeastern United States and just pure quill science fiction. And I did not know what to do. And then I read Bears Discover Fire and realized I can do both. Um, and that led me to uh, writing uh, the, the first short story I wrote, which was called um, When We Killed the Dogs, um, which has thankfully never been published, but it's been successfully strip mined in many of my other and many of my other stories. And it, that got me into Clarion West, where Terry Bisson and Jack Womack were my instructors, oh, okay. along with along with uh, Jeff Ryman, uh, Ellen Datlow, and Rachel Pollock and oh. Pat Cadigan. So I had a we had a hell of a lineup that year, and that was that that made me as a writer, both in terms of writing and and in terms of I guess career uh, aspects, because the connections I made there among both uh, faculty and fellow students really launched me, I think, um, both aesthetically and creatively and and as a person who could publish stories. Well, certainly one of the things that I take away from your short fiction, uh, or from your fiction, is that you're connecting Kentucky to a, to a future. I mean, it's in a, in a weird way, it's not entirely unlike something like, uh, say, Central Station, the Levi Tidhar uh, book, which connects mm-hmm. uh, Tel Aviv into a future uh, with stories. And I think in some ways, for me, your most typical story and one of my favorite stories of yours is The Contrary Ga- uh, Gardener, which is a mm-hmm. smaller scale story mm-hmm. set in Kentucky. Um, and all of the elements of the story are things that have to come from a broader science fictional world around it for that to work. It is connected into that broader science fictional world. And I think that's when a lot of the, the stories work at their best, stories like Brownsville Station and, what, and whatever. Um, it's not, because one of the things I, I suppose, and maybe this might be the concern when you think about regionalism and regional voices, is that they're self-contained and inward-looking rather than coming from the place and outward-looking. And I feel like that's the connection to science fiction that comes through in your work and what I get, like, with these, these prisoning hills, which, as Gary says, is a giant robot story about, you know, the hills of Kentucky that are bombed by, you know, terrible terrible AI and chemicals and nano, all this kind of stuff. It's not exactly Absolutely. Sort of, I mean, Absolutely. I will say two things. One is, I say this all the time, uh, this is kind of a slant tribute to William Gibson, but um, the future happens everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That's my, that's my mantra. And the second thing is, you know, people talk about my stories in all kinds of terms, but what I always struggle to remind people is that the voluntary state, for example, is about a malevolent computer trying to take over the world. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, the country gardener is about a robot rebellion. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I write, my friend Pure Ted, we were talking about Ted Chang. I, I write, I, uh, Ted Chang, who is a great good friend of mine, says that um, back in, oh, around 2008 to 2012, people talked a lot about interstitial fiction. Oh, yeah. And and I, and one of my favorite things that Ted ever said was, I'm stitial. <laughs> Just one other thing about the... Uh, I, I, regionalism is not the right term, I, but I, I, I do think that there's a tradition of science fiction from 
the flyover states, which I don't know who coined that phrase, but I know Neil Gaiman has used it. Um, and it goes back to uh, writers like Clifford Simak, who you got a real sense of the upper Midwest from Simak. You got a, you really knew more about Waukee and Illinois from Bradbury than you ever needed to know. Um, and, and those were, that was a large part of the appeal of those things. There was a sense as a kid growing up in the Midwest, I was, Bradbury was one of the first writers I read. And I thought, oh, the future happens here too. It doesn't just happen in, yes. in New York and LA and uh, Tokyo and London. Right. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, anyway, Semek, I mean, he wrote about the upper Midwest, but he wrote about the upper Midwest in a book literally called Cities in Flight. Cities in Flight was Blish. You're thinking of City. The, Blish, right. But City was his collection of, uh, uh, of, of short stories sort of nailed into a novel. Right, exactly. Yeah. Which is, of course, a, a grand tradition in science fiction, um, the, the fix-up. Yeah. And let's segue, if I can, if I can dictate a segue, <laughs> into... Uh, into my recent fascination with the writer Cordwainer Smith. Uh, yeah. Recently, I read and heard two different people evoke Smith uh, in talking about my writing. And I had, in fact, never read Cordwain. Mm -hmm. And now I have. And boy, howdy have I. Because I have, uh, <laughs> as, Jonathan, as Jonathan has put it, I have fallen down a rabbit hole. I've not only been reading him, I've been collecting him. And I have, um, I now have all 34 of his first short story appearances and two of those short stories were eventually fixed up into Australia, mm -hmm. which I must say I've not read yet. I've read the two, the two halves of it that appeared in short story magazines, galaxy and F both edited, edited by Frederick Pohl. And I, uh, I'm curious about whether and when I will attempt to knit the extant voluntary state stories into some kind of larger narrative and whether it would even work. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it would have to, uh, the, the stories are quite different from one another. Actually, I wrote them at, I wrote them years and years apart from one another. Yeah. They have different aesthetic concerns, but I've, I've toyed with it. I've played with it and wondered whether it would ever work. It's not something I'm going to do anytime soon, but um, I really am interested in the history of science fiction um, going all the way back to 1927 26, 27. When did 26? Amazing. Yeah. 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 And, um, the, uh, I like to be in conversation with that. I like to interact with it. The, uh, there's a recent, no, it's not a recent phenomenon. It's a centuries old phenomenon of people trying to escape influence and, or ignore or deny influence. And I celebrate that in a way, you know, um, mm -hmm. I'm glad that there are young writers who have never read, you know, classic science fiction author X. But I sometimes think that even if they're not directly influenced by these earlier science fiction figures, the people who did influence them right. were frequently influenced by those figures, right? Well, one, exa they, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one example that's come up in conversation sometime fairly recently is the number of young writers who are uh, enormously fond of and influenced by Connie Willis. And then right. they're surprised to find out how much Connie Willis loved Heinlein. Um, so that's a second generation. Some of the people who claim Connie as a, as, as, as a, as, as a major influence probably would be appalled at the idea of reading Heinlein themselves. Right. Well, I mean, can you blame them? There's this thing that I call the Heinlein juvenile phenomenon, 
where, uh, which is where whenever anybody brings up the idea of a science fiction YA, there's a certain population, uh, and they all look like, they all look like the three of us, gray haired, uh, gray haired white guys, uh, who will say, well, you should read the Heinlein juveniles, you know, and that's, that's not helpful. <laughs> no, it's not helpful. No. And I think part of the negative discussion of, of influence is that mm -hmm. it seems to be a form of like ownership and coercion in a way. You know, it's this thing mm -hmm. where, you know, if I say you are influenced by, then, you know, you owe some kind of debt to this, this tradition. You are somehow clearly part of it. You're owned by something that I understand. You know, you're part of what Gibson so conveniently referred to as the Gernsback continuum. You're kind of like mm -hmm. owned and in that world, right? Even though you could perf quite honestly say, well, how could that possibly be? I'm a young, queer person of color from the other side of the world writing science fiction. I've got no idea about this stuff. And this is why mm -hmm. I think the, the idea that influence is a waterfall when, in fact, it's a swamp is kind of the, the mistake. I mean, nice I mean you, know, you were saying people were saying that you are influenced. They thought you were influenced by Smith and you hadn't read Smith. Mm -hmm. But I'm fairly confident that you're influenced by people who've been reading Smith. Or oh, yeah, absolutely. That, that I have, to, of, I, I have mm -hmm. to I have to accept some responsibility because I must be one of those people when I was reviewing. You were. <laughs> but, but that was a very specific thing. You have these gigantic stomping machines called Commodore, which have a history in science fiction. And part of the prehistory of those machines were things that Cordwainer Smith called Manchenjagers in one of his multilingual puns. He did an American right. phonetic spelling of a German word Menchenjager, which would translate into manhunter. So those manhunting machines in his in his stories are certainly ancestors of your Commodores, whether you knew it or not. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, I got giant robots from all kinds of different directions. Oh yeah, you know, anime, uh, role playing not role playing games, but tabletop simulation games, um, and and fiction. You know, uh, actually, there was a great. Oh, I wish I could remember the story's name. But in the 80s in Asimov, Alan Steele wrote this great short story about the actual first building of large humanoid robot hmm. war machines. Um, and it's hilarious because they don't work on the battlefield at all because every single person will start shooting at that as soon as it walks into the <laughs> battlefield, right? So what winds up happening is that they essentially become the equivalent of monster trucks. They like go to county fairs and like stage <laughs> stage fights and stuff. And the uh, and the operator, one of them, I, what I remember specifically was um, the guy saying that uh, how much trouble he had getting health insurance as uh, <laughs> as the pilot of as the pilot of a giant robot. <laughs> there was there was there was some of that. Joe Haldeman had a, mi a very mixed experience in writing a screenplay for a movie called Robot Jocks. Oh yeah, I saw that. Which was basically a slugfest of giant robots, mm -hmm. um, which, which uh, uh, if you hear Joe, apparently there was a lot of interesting stuff in the script, but by the time the film was done, it was just a rock'em sock'em, uh, you know, uh, giant yeah. robot uh, slugfest. Could have been, could have been something, but the point is that's an ancient tradition and it's, it's, it's like other ancient traditions. Uh, one of which is the future history to get back to Cordwain or Smith for a minute. Uh, because if the voluntary state and the, uh, that, that series becomes part of a larger history, then you've got a decision to make. You can do what, what Heinlein did under the influence of Campbell and try to outline a specific future history and, and string the stories along that line. Or what Cordwainer Smith did, which was to set some stories in a very, very distant future 
and my, my, my view of the instrumentality of mankind stories is that he didn't have a plan. He's writing, no. he's writing the way history will be, re, the way the future will be remembered in the very, very far future. So it's almost right. like myths. And the stories aren't terribly consistent internally. Sometimes they, they are. absolutely not. Actually, there's a, there's a fascinating and absolutely bonkers book called uh, A Concordance of Cordwainer Smith yeah. that uh, was put out by Nespa Press. Uh, which some wildly enthusiastic fan, I wish I could remember the man's name right now, used the word concordance on this book. And it's not at all a concordance. It's sort of a sort of a dictionary. Glossary, of, yeah. Smith, yeah, glossary of Smithian terms and so on. And it's all over the place. But Smith himself, those stories were all over the place. And I like that. Actually, I think a, I think Nesfa Press's big collection of all of Smith's short fiction is a myth. I think they made one miss, which is they tried to put it in internal chronological yeah. order of the stories. Mm. Whereas I think it would be vastly superior to put it in order of publication because it's not meant, Smith did not mean those stories to be understood as that kind of Heinleinian, you know, rationalized, right. worked out future history. Um, I don't think he was interested in that. I think he, I think his own experience as a person in, very much involved in 20th, 20th century history, probably turned him off of rationalizing because well, so many of the things he encountered in his own life, the, the Linebarger, his, the, mm. not Quarterwinner Smith, so to speak, if we want to call him a heteronym, yeah. to use Priscilla's term, of um, Paul Linebarger, who was a, you know, he was a cold warrior. And um, much of the stuff he experienced from before World War II all the way up through the early 60s must have been almost as confusing and frightening as the world we live in today. <laughs> well, he was also aware of, uh, of how legends work. I mean, one of, uh, one of his best stories, Alpha Ralpha Boulevard, is based on a right. 17th century French uh, novella. Um, and, and, and the French novella is a kind of recounting of a kind of mythical story. So I always thought that he must have viewed his future, the way we would view Arthurian mythos, for example. There are lots of different stories from lots of different traditions. Not all are reliable. I don't think that if, if we had been able to corner Smith, if he had been well-known in the field, which he never really was that well-known until after his death, I guess. But if you'd been able to corner him, I don't think he ever would have said, I intend this to be consistent. I, I, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm writing stories that as they might be remembered by thousands and thousands of years in the future. But mm -hmm. those stories mm -hmm. are not necessarily consistent. They aren't necessarily um, uh, part of any system at all, um, even though he did have recurrent things. And this is what I think makes and, – and, and he didn't know that he was dealing with science fiction fans. He didn't know how obsessive they were going to be. So right. that people want to check out, okay – are the under people in this story the same as the under people in that story? Exactly. And are the Volmax exactly. sisters really the same? Of you know, it just it, it, you, well, you I would argue. suggest that mm -hmm. in addition to the French influences, which are all through Alpha Alpha oh, Boulevard yeah. and through Grunt Boat, um, Rambo, yeah. Of course, of course, the uh, Chinese novels and legendary are huge in Smith mm -hmm. because of his personal background. Uh, as Sun Yat-sen's godson, which yeah. is amazing to me, uh, he learned he learned French from Sun Yat-sen's wife, um, and he was exposed to he was exposed to exposed to Chinese legendary from the time he was very young, and he's he was quite explicit about that influence. Yeah. I think he was proud of it as well. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, do you do you find when you look at your own work to t- pull this around a little bit that when you look back, you're surprised at the influences from your own reading that end up having impacted you more than you might have expected? Yes. Um, I I will say that like many writers, I very rarely revisit my own work. I did I did read I did go back and read the two previous voluntary state stories um, to basically to check some proper nouns. <laughs> um, and you know I said earlier that uh, that I you know identified some elements of Carson McCullers and Terry Bisson and Warner Brothers cartoons and in those early stories. But there's there's tiny little stuff. There's you know there's a there's things where I can see the echo of a specific line from hmm. a Robert uh, Heinlein or from a Judy Moffat story, right? And I don't think most of that stuff is not likely to ever be noticed by anybody but me. Um, and I don't notice it when I'm writing it. That's that's an important distinction to make. I don't I don't realize the influences that are acting on me during the act of writing. And I, I'm comfortable with that. Sure. You know? Well, I mean, arguably one of the myths or one of the stories around science fiction is, you know, the idea of the field in dialogue with itself and writers sitting down to respond to one another's work. And it undeniably has happened, but I personally don't Mm -hmm. think it's as common as we would like to imagine it is when we, uh, that we spin that narrative. So I'm curious, do you find yourself ever deliberately wanting to respond to work or is it something you find you realize you've done after you've done it? I think the latter. Um, I am interested sometimes in writing in a vein that is, that is, that I'm aware of and that is extant in previous work, not necessarily just science fiction. Uh, I mean, I read like most writers, I read very broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of reading broadly, and to to kind of bounce uh, to respond to something you said that you didn't mean for me to respond to, <laughs> but um, I, I recently read a couple of early fandom histories and also a couple of early science fiction biographies, and uh, two of them were the Futurians and by Damon Knight and Frederick Pohl's book, the way uh, the future memoir, was, the way the future was, and what struck me about that was those guys in the 30s and early 40s could and did read everything published, yeah. mm. right? Um, that is now, of course, impossible and probably not even desirable if you could do it um, mm. as a writer. Well, but, yeah. as a writer. well I mean, certainly, I mean, if you look at, you know, well, I was looking back at the history of anthologies recently because it's the thing I do. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the great anthologies in the history of the field was Robert Silverberg's The Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Which was designed to collect a selection of the best stories from the field prior to the existence of the Nebula Awards, and probably up until the tenth Nebula Awards, so the mid nineteen seventies or so. I think it was quite possible to read, if not every single thing, then every single major thing, and most of the other things published in science fiction. It was. It's only been in the last twenty years or thirty years that the field in all sorts of different ways has exploded and changed and it becomes impossible. You cannot look at you can't meaningfully keep track of all the different kinds of influences on story, whether it be in gaming, television, whatever else. And then you know, online, whatever else. I mean, the, the great change in publishing where now there's effectively no real practical barrier to becoming a publisher other than choosing to do so means that there's an mm-hmm. infinite number potentially of 
you know, venues where work can appear. So how could you possibly keep track of it all? And that makes it a lot harder, I think, for individual works to be as influential on the field. They're not, you know, people I now. Agree. I agree. I agree. Mean, you know, it's almost, it's almost yeah. monthly that I found out that a whole venue exists, much less, you know, a writer, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. there's, and that's wonderful. That is wonderful. Yeah. And, and if, um, if cross pollination isn't working the way it once did, then ideation is thriving in a way that it never did. Sure. I think people, I think people are, uh, have a much broader spectrum of influences to choose if they want to call them influences. Uh, and I think that goes back to the history because when you, Jonathan, for example, you mentioned uh, the science fiction hall of fame, which is a very good self-portrait of the field. But those stories were voted on by the membership of the SFWA 50 years ago, essentially, which mm -hmm. was virtually exclusively white, mm -hmm. overwhelmingly male. Uh, and they were looking at the stories that they all c felt formed their community. That community was solidified 50 years ago. Uh, I think Cordwainer Smith did make his way into one of those. But Smith is one of the names that keeps cropping up when people discover a writer they didn't know anybody else had discovered. In other words, um, he, the, the people who adhere to a, an oddball writer like Smith are not necessarily the same people who would have read Doc Smith uh, back in the 20s or who read, would have read Van Vogt, as insane as he was. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm talk, when we talk to younger writers, I'm finding a lot of people know Cordwainer Smith, um, and they all seem to feel like they've made that discovery on their own which I think is wonderful because it means people are still reading widely in the field, but they're being more selective. You don't have mm -hmm. to read um, Van Vogt stories. You don't have to be uh, impressed by Asimov's prose, partly because you can't really be impressed by Asimov. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, can, you can find, uh, and Lisa Yasek doing her uh, you know, stories of women writers in the pulp magazines. You can be influenced by Lee, Lee Rackham now, uh, uh, and, and and she's kind of emerged as an important writer, more so than people would have thought twenty or thirty years ago. You know, I um, just today I saw some griping from an author who I will not name <laughs> about not being invited to a literary festival that is going on this weekend. Uh -huh. And this writer said something about something like, "I guess science fiction writers aren't good enough for this festival." And then somebody else pointed, not pointed out, but they were. This other writer um, said, well, yeah, look, the two headliners are Margaret Atwood and Emily St. John Mandel. And I'm like, um, <laughs> <you know>? right. <laughs> <laughs> their, their two most famous works are, in fact, science fiction books. So, you know. Well, OK, there's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, to, to, to defend this nameless author, they're yeah. authors whose most famous works are science fiction books, but they have not been tainted as science fiction writers. Right, right. Yeah, which goes all the way back to Vonnegut's urinal. Exactly right. right. The uh, I'm curious. Maybe I should explain that. <laughs> yes. Why not? All right. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut said that he didn't want to be identified as a science fiction writer, and I think this part is the quote because science fiction is a urinal put, that people put fiction in to, I guess, urinate on. Or yeah. Something. I don't basically. remember the exact wording. There really should have been a science fiction award called that. Kurt Vonnegut's urinal. <laughs> the urinal. Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to actually. I do want to imagine that the physical award. That's a separate thing. I'm curious. Question for you. Um, it's been what 50 years since there's been an original, a new piece of uh, 
Cordwainer Smith published, or clearly is about 50 years. Um, why do you think it's still read? Because this is one of those things. I think one of the things that people who are our, our age or older are worried about it is that the works of their youth that profoundly influenced them will, will somehow be forgotten and stop being important. Now, to some degree, that's a natural part of life. Things just get churned over by the passage of time. But Cordwainer Smith, with, with what is a fairly confo- small body of work, you know, mm-hmm. you've been able to collect it in a couple, you know, a month or so. Um, yeah. Continues to be read. What do you think is that, that gives it the spark that keeps it alive? Because I feel if Cordwainer Smith is being re- being read fifty years later, he'll probably be read a hundred years later. You know, he's so. going to slide through through that kind of. Uh, he's going to thread that needle. His you know his career will. I think uh, I think he won't ever be widely read. Um, I think he'll be deeply read, mm. which is what I'm doing and what I think other people that Gary has mentioned are doing. Uh, his last story was, um, I think it was in an issue of a magazine in February 1966. It was Under Old Earth. And yeah. that's one of the early stories, well, about a third of the way through the Nespa book. Um, and the reason that Cordwainer Smith is and still will be read is all through that story because it is profoundly imaginative. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the the language of it. I mean, Smith's language got more and more and more interesting uh, the older he got, and he did not get very old. He died when he was fifty three. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that first story in nineteen fifty, Scanners Living in Fame, is a fantastic story, but mm-hmm. its language is not particularly ambitious. The it, it succeeds on on ideation and theme and. All of his stories succeed on ideation mm. and theme, the ones that are most successful anyway. Um, he did, he, he dropped a couple of stinkers. Um, but the, uh, I think the reason that I'm engaging with him, and I think that the reason he will continue to be engaged with, is that he hits on all cylinders. You know, he, mm. he you know, mm-hmm. at his best, he writes fantastically strange plots with deeply meaningful and provocative themes in language that is just intensely and endlessly interesting. Mm. I think there's, I think there's uh, go ahead, Jonathan. No, 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 no. I, I was going to say, I think there's another factor that may uh, intrigue younger writers. And that is that a lot of issues that are now much more current in science fiction than they would have been 50 years ago uh, are, are, are there implicitly or explicitly in some of his stories, the idea of, 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 of bodily identity, the idea of form, the idea of the underpeople, the idea of gender, the idea mm-hmm. of going into space with a telepathic cat, um, <laughs> which, which, by the way, in one of his mainstream novels, he wrote two novels as Felix Forrest, which is another Chinese, Latin, English pun. Um, right. And in, in, in Corolla, Corolla at one point is thinking, I think this cat is communicating with me telepathically. And and, and and both of his mainstream novels were written from the point of view of women. Uh, women, and there's a point in somewhere in one of his stories where one of his letters where he he wonders. Oh no, it's Corolla again. I think. Why are there only two sexes? Why can't there be lots of different sexes? And you can kind mm-hmm. of see him straining at what he could do within realistic fiction. But there was also this notion of his own gender identity, which seemed strange. I mean, not only does he write autobiographical novels, female point of view, but he apparently wrote manuscripts creating a kind of female persona as the writer, even though he never submitted them under a female name. 
Um, now that is news to me. Um, That's very interesting. Uh, so, but but you can see how how gender identity figures in a lot of his fiction, even the most wildly romantic fiction, and things like uh, the Ballad of Lost Camel. On the one hand, are classic mm-hmm. romances. On the other hand, they're interrogating those romances in a very kind of modern way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and in the Ballad of Lost Camel, of course. The romance doesn't go off. No, uh, there's all this. There's all this strange stuff because Kamel herself is a cat. Yeah, uh, she's an uplifted cat, and the the Lord of the Instrumentality she works with is someone who, at the end of the story, and you know, spoilers, but this story is fifty five <laughs> years old. Um, he finally realizes that he, a human, um, was in love with her, and she realizes early that she's in love yeah. with him. But there are these, you know, as there are in our and as our own should be, there are deep taboos um, against you know, physical relationships, right. especially between the uplifted animals and humans. And I think I think that Smith was very cognizant of the fact that um, that different societies, different ethnicities, different. I mean, he's somebody who grew up before Loving versus Virginia, yeah, right? right? I mean, he he he. Um, I think he's intensely aware of ethnicity because he grew up among the Chinese and then he, he had a very close relationship with a woman who was unfortunately his servant. And he wrote a very, very uncomfortable, um, mem- um, Oh, the introduction, memoir. the introduction to the introduction to space, space Lords. Lords. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a tough thing to read. Um, the, uh, about his, about her. she was a she was a black woman, but she worked for him for seventeen years and actually died in his house. Uh-huh. She's she she was living she was staying in his guest room. Um, and I don't know. He he said of he was a religious person too. He said of of uh, of formal religion or of attending church services that he did not want to hear religious people or religious leaders talking about political issues because they didn't know what they were talking about. They had no expertise in it. And I wonder how much Smith consciously thought of that, thought about things. You know, he was, he did most of his most productive writing in the first half of the sixties. Yeah. When, when, you know, the civil rights movement was just going strong and his work kind of speaks to that, but he doesn't seem to have ever, incorporated into his life as much as he did into his fiction, as near as I can tell. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I had a colleague uh, who's older than I am even, who actually took a course from Linebarger at Johns Hopkins, a course, wow. car, course in Far Eastern politics. None of the students had any clue whatsoever that he was a fiction. And mm-hmm. what they put, my friend was, I mean, my friend was like not 20 years old when he took the course, was impressed by was Linebarger's insistence on looking at, for example, the Japanese perspective on, on, on World War II um, and mm-hmm. the Chinese perspective on the Japanese invasion of China. This is, so he was looking, apparently what he did that surprised my, my friend was he was not looking at, uh, at Far Eastern politics from Western perspective at all. He was trying to get the students to see um, Far Eastern politics from that perspective, which was his own perspective. And only years later did my friend, who became a historian himself, realize that was really unusual in the 1960s at Johns Hopkins to take mm. that perspective. Interesting. I was thinking about the, about the writers from the, the 40s, 50s, 60s who are continuing to be read. And some of them uh, are particularly unique and distinct writers like, like Smith. And I'm curious, I mean, I've got my doubts about it, 
how well do you think that the classic Campbellian writers are going to hold up over time? I feel like they're, I mean, apart from being some very public repudiations of the Campbellian tradition in the last couple of years, I feel like they're not aging well. I mean, it would have been unthinkable when I started reading science fiction, and you and I aren't that far off, you know, sort of chronologically. You know, I'm like, I think about four years older than you are. It would have been unthinkable that a work of Heinlein's could go out of print, and it's no longer unthinkable. It's, it's, it, it was unthinkable that A. Van Vogt could not be a dominant voice in our field, and he's on course to be almost completely free. You know, the only thing I know about A. Van Vogt, I think he was the guy that said, introduce a new idea or character every 600 words. Yeah, he read, he like read that, that in some writing manual published in the 20s. Yeah. He also introduced the term fix-up. Um, oh, interesting. Which is where the... Um, to answer your question, John, I don't think Highland will ever go to print because of what you were saying earlier about the proliferation of publishers. Mm-hmm. I think that there will always be somebody that keeps Highland and the other Cambellians in print. Um, most of those guys, and it's pretty much exclusively guys, mm. don't tend to be among the great prose stylists of the 20th century. Um, they're all about ideas, and a lot of their ideas have come and gone. You know, yeah. um, They're literally dated. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're absolutely literally dated. And so you get the people that survive from the 50s and 60s and into the 70s are people who were, I mean, uh, I was getting ready to say they're people who people who were uh, formal stylists, but then I was getting ready to say Philip K. Dick right after that. And he, was, <laughs> he was hardly a formal stylist. So I would argue um, that the, oh, go on, I'm sorry, go ahead and finish your thought. No, no, I was just going to say, so in short to answer your question, no, they won't ever go out of print because of the way publishing works now. I mean, it, they'll at least be ebooks or online or something. Um, and the um, and yes, uh, what was the second after your question? I'm sorry, I lost the plot there. <laughs> okay. What were you getting ready to say, Gary? I was going to say that I think that uh, what's what's happening with the reconsidering of uh, of Campbell writers, Campbell writers going out of fashion, which isn't even the right word. The ones that are suffering from that the most are those for whom Campbell had his thumb on the scale very much. Uh, the people like Van Vogt and Asimov, and to some extent Heinlein, and even people like Eric Frank Russell, the more Campbell dictated to these writers, the less memorable, memorable they became. But some of the writers we've already mentioned who were publishing Campbell but weren't of Campbell, including Simak, um, including, including uh, Lee Brackett, uh, those, those are writers that are being rediscovered, again, by individual writers. Um, I, in other words, I think Simak survives because he's so odd. Um, Sturgeon survives largely because he did develop a prose style and worked at it very yes. hard. Um, mm. And so you can go back and find a Sturgeon story, which he might have sold to Campbell, but nobody thinks of that as a Campbell story, the way you think of an Asimov story as a Campbell story. Right. Did Theodore Sturgeon ever wander down to the office and be told and have Campbell put down his cigarette light, his cigarette holder <laughs> and say, give me 4,000 words on, you know, whatever. Yeah. I, mean, I know, As- but Asimov did. Asimov did, did I mean, exactly what he was did. told. Yeah, yeah. And he cheerfully reports that in his autobiography. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you were to talk about influence to everything else, I mean, surely the most discussed story in the history of the science fiction field is a Campbellian story. Is the arch Campbellian story the cold equation? Are you about to say the cold equation? Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. But, which this day is that's still stupid, argued about. That's a stupid, all that's a stupid story. Well, I mean, he could have thrown out the desk. I mean, you know, <laughs> so much... 
but it, 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 and it was and it was Campbell's fault. The thing is, Tom Godwin apparently did not. He had an ending. He had a solution to the problem. But uh, on the other hand, you could argue that the cold equations, like Starship Troopers, has some value in it. It's generated a whole little library of response stories. Uh, the Good. best of which is yeah, probably absolutely. Jim Kelly's "Think Like a Dinosaur." Um, right. Right. So in other words, and, go ahead. And of course, you know, Starship Troopers generated the Forever War. Exactly. Which, yeah. which is, which are actually, you know, you should read those two books. I mean, I, well, no, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say should. There's yeah. not, but if you do read Starship Troopers, you should read the Forever War. You know, <laughs> and then look for what comes after because the the whole you know nature of the field is there are the books that came after the Forever War that pick up that kind of discussion, not just in terms of military science fiction. And it becomes interesting to see how that evolves over time. And, and I actually would be interested from my own perspective to sort of go, how would you approach that lineage of story in 2022? Because the world is not the world it was. Our views aren't the same, you know, and who would be writing it? You know, I mean, I was fascinated, although it's not directly relevant, that um, Arcadia Martin, who I would have thought was influenced a particular tra- uh, tradition, uh, particularly, say, Le Guin or someone, would say that it's mm-hmm. C.J. Cherry who's the, the greater mm-hmm. influence. Same for Anne Leckie said. And that's not the way people looking ex- from a distance would imagine that influence works. They would imagine it was something else. So, I mean, it's plainly, even in these muddied times, influence are things that are continuing to bubble around. And there is some discussion in response. I've seen stories recently in, re- in response to the one who walks away from Amalas. Um and mm-hmm. you still continue to see, I mean, there's a cold equations response in the last couple of years that got a lot of dialogue. So there, I mean, there is that kind of interest within people who are still, I guess, hardcore science fiction readers of the time. But to go back to what we were saying earlier, some of these responses are written in, in I'm not going to say in ignorance, they're, they're written in independence of awareness of the first story along the line. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know? So then what they're written to is they're written to the echo of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know? That's a good way to put it. Well, you know, I mean, I've seen, I've seen uh, just, a, just a parenthesis uh, footnote that I've seen a, a couple of stories within the last five or six years by authors who probably never read uh, a story like Heinlein's Universe or even a couple of Generation Starship stories before that. But the Generation Star- Starship is such a story generator that uh, people have virtually, and at least a couple of stories I can think of, and I shouldn't mention them, have virtually replicated Heinlein's plot without knowing they're doing it. Because that's one right. of the inevitable things that will happen if you imagine a generation starship. Mm-hmm. It's like there are only so many people you can kill in an English village and still have an Agatha Christie mystery. <laughs> I guess the question there, though, is whilst it's interesting, particularly to scholars of the field, how important is it? In other words, if the person writing today writes a story that, in effect, because there are only so many iterations of an idea in the world, uh, reproduces a modern version of universe, is it a terrible thing that they're not aware of universe? No. No. No, absolutely not. See, this is what I think is a great problem about this whole subject, uh, influence, whatever else, and that is that... we want to assign both an importance to it, but also like a toxicity to it, rather than being a simple observation. I mean, one of of the things I used to think about what's happening in science fiction is science fiction went from being a very clear, coherent thing. And then what happened was uh, it has atomized over the last 20, 30 years. And there's small little subgroups of this and that where people are talking to each other and they've yet to coalesce back into a coherent argument. And that's when you'll see science fiction move forward when it comes back. 
if it does. And so I was going to say, I don't, I'm not, I'm not confident that that coalesces is going to work. Um, no, I don't think we're now. Are, are you hearing echoes, Gary? Yes, I am now for some reason. Something's gone off somewhere. Um, I'm not hearing it. Well, you're not echoing yourself. Oh, and Jonathan and I are, at least to my hearing. Yeah. I don't know why, because nothing's changed here at my well, end. You've stopped echoing now. Oh, okay. Have I? You have stopped. Huh. And well, so have I now. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to so <laughs> anyway, at least At least we're this far. And there it's back again. Well, I, one of the things I want to say about the idea of there are so many ideas in science fiction and you can't repeat them is no, no other field does that. I mean... Nobody in the mystery field says you can't do a locked room mystery because it's been done before. Nobody writing mainstream suburban updike fiction says you can't write a novel about an English professor having an affair with a student while his wife is living in Paris because that's been done. It just is something that seems unique to the science fiction field is that <laughs> ideas belong to the person who invented them. That's not the case. It's not the case. And it actually is in conversation with everything else we've been talking about. From the time that you could read everything being written to being aware or not aware of your influences, science fiction is, I don't mean this negatively, but it's insular, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a self-aware genre, and people are, people are passionate about it. Well, and my, my own mentor uh, and one of the old guys who uh, helped define that uh, consensus history of science fiction was Jim Gunn. And one of his favorite oh, yeah. lines was to say that science fiction is the literature of ideas, which was the mantra we all grew up with. And it always, from the first time I heard it, it, it bothered me. Science fiction obviously deals in ideas, but the implication is that no other fiction does? Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you talk about science fiction being insular socially as well. That's its nature. When I encountered it first, you know, the culture of science fiction and fandom is it is an inward-looking, self-congratulatory kind of, you know, aren't we clever? I, I will not name here the science fiction writer who visited Perth one year and re referred to a group of college students who were reading science fiction, whatever else, as the bright-eyed children of the future, because it was invested in that whole idea. And I do remember looking around the room, going, "I kind of like. I hope not. You know, <laughs> they're lovely people, but I hope not, right?" Um, and I think actually we're in a much healthier place than we ever were in that in that that, that, that regard, because the field is different and changed. Um, I don't know. It's it's a strange field, but you know, I've loved it for half my most of my life. You know, so absolutely. Same. But it's interesting. So let me ask. Yeah. Oh, sorry, guys. But I was just going to say, to, to kind of get back to what this whole conversation is, Christopher, it's delight. It's delight to talk to somebody who's as interested in in constructing their own history of the field as you are. I mean, uh, you, you you're turning yourself into a scholar of Cordwainer Smith within a matter of weeks, and <laughs> I, I think that's admirable. I remember discovering Cordwainer Smith myself and wanting to read everything. And I think you're right. Uh, that's a writer who will be read some hmm. from now on. There's a quotation from another writer who is uh, one of my favorite examples of an obscure writer that everybody thinks they're the only one that know about, and that's David Lindsay, who wrote A Voyage to Arcturus, which is a very strange and bizarre, really a fantasy novel. It's not really something. And it was a complete failure, and his life was a complete failure. Had it not been for a few people like Harold Bloom, he probably would be forgotten. But he said before he died that he's never going to be a popular writer, but somewhere in the world, every year, someone will read one book of his. Mm. And he's right. been absolutely right about that so far. He's only been dead for 70 years, but still. 
You know, uh, Alan Gunn told me once that there's a crucial difference between a well-known writer and a well-regarded writer. The uh, the well-regarded writer being, you know, it's kind of like what the Washington Post said about uh, the the zine Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, where they described it as small but mighty. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I have heard people describe as saying, you know, only a thousand people read that, but it's the thousand people you want mm-hmm. to read, you know, that you want to read your work. An idea that I think is important that applies to Cordwainer Smith. I mean, because I was thinking, Nesfor Press did Cordwainer Smith an enormous service. But for all that we could argue Mm -hmm. that the rediscovery of mankind would be better structured in a different way, that book Mm -hmm. is the anchor book for his career. I mean, I believe in anchor works and anchor creations. I think the reason that Fritz Leiber will always be remembered is because of Fafford and the Grey Mouse. Roger Zelazny will always be remembered because of Amber. He has something to... Those writers have something to hang it, their, their, the, the memory on. And this book becomes that. The Rediscovery of Man is the thing. And it will, it, it means in, in print under a different title in the UK and around, you know, sort of the world in different ways. And right. I think having the difference between the writers who get to be remembered and the thing with them, you're right on one hand, Christopher, when you say a lot of these works will never go out of print, but they will go out of focus. They will disappear into the, 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 the dusty corners of the long tail accessible to those who are interested, but not to anybody else. Um, right. It takes that anchor work. And it's like, does someone have an anchor creation? You know, and, and for that, it has to be to some degree timeless. I mean, I look at Lafferty and Davidson and Smith and Waldrop and writers like that. And I think, how are, is it that they're going to be remembered when I have doubts about, say, a chunk of the Heinlein, which as you say, are all about ideation and whatever else. And those ideas get old and you go from being current and timely to being out of date and uh, dated. And you never get to make the next transition, which is you go to being people where you're brilliant, but of your time. Yeah. Right. And because there, well, there are, I mean, sometimes, oh. sometimes that's good enough. The, uh, oh, yeah. the, you know, you, I, the, there's a there's a fun game to play, which is to look at what the New York Times bestsellers were 75 mm. years ago this yeah. week. You know, sure. um, I, I'm just to go off on a tangent here for a second. Science fiction people are always amused when I tell them that the first Robert Heinlein books I read, I pulled out of a bargain bin at the Walden Books in Greenwood Mall <laughs> in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And the first Heinlein books I read were Job, A Comedy of Justice, and The Number of the Beast. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, John, and John Kessel says, the fact that you ever read any other Robert That's remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess as well, I mean, sometimes you, you, know, you do want to say, what do people want writers to have? I mean, Heinlein had 50 years, 80 years of dominance. Is it really that bad that Heinlein or Asimov or, <clears throat> pardon me, Van Vogt or whoever else should fade and make room? I mean, you were, you were saying about how you know a writer who we won't name, you won't name, was unhappy about not being invited to a festival. I can think of writers who were enormously popular even in the late nineteen nineties, who have largely faded from view. You know, but that, that's true in general, and that's normal. That's okay. You know, yeah, I, mean, I think. It, I mean, as we record, they're awarding the the Nebula Awards this year. Uh-huh. And the people who are on that ballot are not people who were being nominated in 1999 or 2005. No. And that feels to no. me like how it should be. And Absolutely. The awards, the awards now are just such great reasons. I mean, mm. the, because the, the books getting the books and stories being nominated for the Hugo and the Nebula, the, 
actually the short the short list for the Theodore Sturgeon is actually relatively conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, but the big awards are fascinating as a way of discovering new writers. I have no idea how they. Well, I don't know how these awards work anyway. I'm not even in Sefwa, but the fact that they wind up on on um, awards ballots when they're not, you know, you don't see their books faced out, you know, in the no. in the new books section. Um, it's great. It's absolutely great, and I love it because I get to I get exposed to so much stuff that I might not be exposed to otherwise. But one of the things well, I would say as a footnote to what who's going to be read twenty and thirty years from now is it's not going to be based on who came up with the first idea or who uh, wrote the first generation Starship stories. It's writes good stories. I mean, you talk about the influence of Heinlein and I don't see much of it there in Cordwain or Smith at all. Uh, or in a lot no, of, no, but it's there in John's, but it's there in John Scalzi. Oh, it is. It's he's tremendous. Yeah. He's a tremendously popular writer, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, so let me ask you to segue out of all of this. What comes next for you? You're writing a novella for uh, uh, Ellen Datlow at the moment, which would, if all things goes to plan, I imagine come out sometime next year. Uh, yeah. At some point, I mean, I know you've written a handful of novels in different contexts, but and you've co-written with with Gwenda Bond and uh, whatever else. But I mean, what's next for you? Where is the 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 main debut novel? Is there an idea for that? Where, where are you going yeah. next? It has to be a novel. Um. It has to be an adult science fiction novel to satisfy myself. Mm-hmm. The uh, you know science fiction is a is a wonderful field, and I've had a unique well not unique but I've had an interesting career, and then I get to be a debut author like six times. You know, <laughs> I mean, my my first novel was a tie in for um for Dungeons and Dragons that like very few people read. Um, that you know that actually is hilarious. The only reason my Forgotten Realms novel is not the least popular one ever is that Paul Park one wrote. Paul Park wrote one too. <laughs> 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 um, so I wrote that, which was kind of my debut novel, and then I wrote those Middle Grades with Gwenda, which were kind of debut novels. Yeah. And now I get to I now get to be a debut writer with my first adult science fiction uh, novel. And I'm, that's the, the plan is to the book that I'm, that I've already started working. Well, the book that I already wrote a whole, a whole draft of is called Sarah across America. And I'm going to um, refigure it to a little bit fit in with some of the stories I've written um, before that have been published at uh, tour.com and other places. And I'm excited about it. I think, um, you know, who knows if anybody will buy it, but I'm uh, I'm com- I'm, I'm reasonably confident somebody will buy it. I don't know if anybody will ever read it, but the uh, I'm excited. I hope to, you know, you, Jonathan, as you say, as you said, I've you you've been hearing about this for years, but it's it's the logical and really only next step for me. And so my plan is to finish a novella called The Navigating Fox uh, that will be out probably next year from Tor.com. And then hopefully a year or two after that, we'll see Christopher Rowe's debut adult science fiction novel. And then eventually we'll hear more about the Athena Wars from yes, these prisoning yes. hills. Right. You know, I, well, I'm mindful, though. I, I got to be careful. I got to I gotta be wise about my health and everything else because I was just reading in the afterword of Space Lords. We were talking about this earlier. Um, one of the last things, you know, that book, the the four, the prologue and epilogue of that were pretty much the only things that Smith ever said in public to his public mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. science fiction. And one of the things he said was, 
Um, I will, you know, go, thank you. Goodbye. I'm going to, you're going to see, I'm going to write hundreds, if not thousands of pages and more stories until, until I can't anymore or something like that. And then he was dead a year later yeah. at 53. Yeah. So I don't plan to die. <laughs> um, and I'm almost as old as Smith was when he died now, but, um, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that, that well-read writers are writing writers, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're writers who put stuff out. I mean, I live with a writer who puts out two books a year. So, you know, that's got to put some pressure on you in a way. <laughs> it does. It does. She, uh, she has little, my wife, Gwenda Bond, uh, has little patience or time for my shenanigans whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I'm, a clinician when it comes to the words in a sentence you know i am i will <laughs> i will stop and think for hours about you know whether or not an adverb is going to strengthen this <laughs> sentence or not and uh that is no way to get a novel done my friends <laughs> <laughs> well on that note we might bring this to a close. We'll point out that These Prisoning Hills by Christopher Rowe is available from all good and even mediocre bookstores out there in the world at the moment in print and an ebook and all sorts of good, good formats, forms, so please check that down. But for now, Christopher Rowe, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. Thank you, gentlemen. And until next time, this has been the Good Street Podcast.